arts are everywhere and in everything. And there's a fascinating, unique person and story behind each one. And that's what the Arthropologist is all about. Exploring the arts, one unique person and one unique story at a time. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Arthropologist. Welcome to The Arthropologist. I had originally planned on a grand flowery introduction of my next guest, telling you how dazzling and amazing her voice is. But after hearing that, you don't need it. You already know. So by way of introduction, let me just say this. My guest has a bachelor's and a master's degree in vocal performance from Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. She has taught voice at Jones Community College, Heinz Community College, and Belhaven University. She's also taught both piano and voice privately for over 40 years. She has performed with the Mississippi Opera, the Mississippi Symphony, and she's been a recitalist across the Southeast. It's also been my special privilege to hear her many times as a soloist at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. So without further ado, let me just welcome my guest. Gina Everett. Hey, Gina. Good morning, Bill. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on. And, oh, this will be our third time to try this. Uh, I'm relatively new at this, so I've had my, uh, I've had my share of technical glitches, but we are on, so I wanted to just get started right away. First of all, uh, that beautiful piece of, of music that we played, it was just astounding. I'm going to have to get you to give me the name of it because you didn't have it on the CD, but it was just fantastic. Um, so first question I wanted to ask you, uh, you, don't, you, you don't consider yourself an opera singer. You consider yourself a classical singer? Yes. Okay, so what's the difference? Is, is an opera singer always a classical singer and a classical singer? Certainly. Certainly. Opera is just probably the highest form of singing you can do, mainly because roles are so long uh, in, in length, and it takes a lot of stamina, a lot of technique, a big voice that can project, and uh, certainly opera singers are trained classically. We say that in a broad sense. Actually, I like to say bel canto singing, which is just Italian for beautiful singing. But yes, I was trained classically. I've done some opera, very limited scale. I've never done any large roles, but have done some small ones. But I prefer oratorio, art song, doing recitals. That is the area that, that I have uh, chosen to focus on. I know that you as a voice teacher, there are going to be things that you're going to have to tell your students will affect their voice and how they can sing their health and different things. Could you go into that a little bit about what a, a voice major or someone who's just learning how to sing better, what they have to do 
to, to help you have, better. You absolutely have to be in good shape and fit and eat well and have good sleep habits. Uh, singing is energy and vitality. And, uh, you know, our, we sing with our entire bodies, not just that little place in our neck. We use our entire bodies. So vitality and vibrancy of health is very key, very essential. Have you noticed your voice change over the years? Do voices change that much over the years? Voices mature, yes. They continue to mature. Some singers can sing into their 80s. Others have to quit at mid-50. Uh, it just depends on the person. Um, of course, it's essential to sing every day, to sing scales, to keep your technique up. And uh, the longevity of the voice, you know, it can, it can last a long time. Is it going to tend steps to keep it that way? Is it going to tend to get lower over over time or higher or? No, voices would tend to get lower, a little darker, maybe. Uh, however, I've I've had a student recently who's seventy two years old. She can still sing a high C beautifully. She's amazing. Uh, I myself have lost some of those high notes that I used to have. And I haven't seemed to be been able to get them back. I'd like to, <laughs> but uh, voices are different. You know, they you know you can, but they do change. They get more mature as you get older. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about uh, you're a singer, and you have allergies. Now all of a sudden your nose is stopped up or something. Do you just not perform or is there a way around that? I've always wondered, what do you do? Well, we live in the allergy capital here in Mississippi. So for me, it's a constant struggle because I do have allergies. So I do many, many things to prevent uh, the buildup of symptoms that would uh, hinder me from singing. But there are times when uh, the, when the vocal cords get involved and have a lot of uh, drainage, they get, they get edema, they get red. It's very hard for the voice, the vocal cords to approximate when that happens. And uh, many times when you just have head con congestion, your vocal cords are not affected. Uh, you just feel stopped up in your head, yet you can still sing. But as singers, we try to do everything we can to keep those vocal cords clear and healthy. Okay. Now, you've been teaching for a long time. Have you ever run into someone that just absolutely cannot sing, that, that they're just untrainable? Or is, is everyone able to at least have some ability to sing? I have never had anyone come to me who absolutely could not match pitch. Uh, there are, there's a, a, a minority of the population that essentially are tone deaf and they cannot match pitch. But I think those are few and far between and most anyone who can hum or match pitches in a tune can be trained to use their voice in a better way. Is the problem for most people is, either A, that they don't have a lot of range because their voice just physically can't 
uh, go from what is, uh, I'm not even sure what the terminology is other than range where they just, they can't go very high or very low. So you've got that, is there a physical limitation or is it just that it's like a muscle that they haven't uh, learned to properly use and that they'd have more of a range if they just learned how to use their voice correctly? Well, that's one thing we do work on. And when someone is building their voice is extension of range. We work on resonance. We build resonance. Of course, freedom of sound is, is just uh, very foundational to sing freely and let your voice function the way it was created to be. Uh, range is also another element that we work on in in voice study, in increasing range, either high or low. Uh, I have not had that many students who had a limited range that absolutely couldn't go one way or the other. Generally, it's increasing the range in the high voice, uh, but although the low voice as well has to come into play. So uh, range is kind of a relative thing, but I have not run into people who were totally limited in range. And practice. Um, I know that, you know, practice has got to be incredibly important. What, how much practice a day would you tell a student to engage in, but then also, is there too much? Can you just flat wear your voice out and, uh, over overexert it. You can wear your voice out when you're singing incorrectly, for certain. And uh, in voice, we use vocal scales and exercises with with the pure vowel sounds. Uh, a student should work out in their session each day, beginning with warm ups and scales and vocal exercises, and then go to literature. But a student needs to stop practicing when they feel tired, if their throat is hurting. You know, when your opt optimum energy level is down, you don't want to continue to sing and push your voice. Pushing a voice will, uh, will have negative effects. But as long as you feel like you are singing healthily, you can sing as long as you want. Okay. But of course, it's just like exercising your body muscles you're exercising your vocalis muscle by singing daily. Okay. And you've, I, you and I have talked before about damage to the vocal cords. I told you about uh, the, I think he's a heavy metal singer, Meatloaf, who had, uh, I believe I saw a documentary about him and he uh, was getting a real gravelly voice. He went to, uh, I guess, a nasopharyngealist, uh, and he said, you're developing nodules because you're screaming too much. You need to learn how to project your voice without screaming. So right. tell us a little bit about how a singer uh, sings without damaging their voice, how they can, what we just heard earlier, you do. Oh my gosh, that was loud. I mean, you can just project your voice and fill a huge auditorium. How are you doing that without straining your voice, straining your vocal cords? Well, very simply, in teaching voice, you want to teach 
a student the, the physi physiological aspects of their instrument and the fact that we develop the muscles of the mid-abdomen to create support and breath control. You have to have a free, steady flow of air to, uh, to have a free vocal sound. And so a lot of times I'm teaching students the things they should not do because sometimes naturally we want to push our voice with muscles that we shouldn't be using. And we have to learn to be, have a very relaxed vocal tract to make space for resonant sounds. But we are developing the mid-ab muscles, the intercostal muscles of the ribs, the actual large abdominal muscles in the mid-ab section. These all work together to create a situation where we can keep a lot of air in the lower part of our lungs and have it flow steadily under the actual tone that we are producing. Okay. Now, getting away from the physicality of it a little bit, let's talk a little bit about just the music itself. What attracts you to classical singing as opposed to some other genre? Well, as a child, I began studying music with piano, and I was a very good pianist, and I loved it, and uh, went to college on a scholarship as a piano major. And uh, also in college that freshman year, I had to take 30 minutes of voice every week. And I knew I could sing. I sang in high school, and I knew I had a voice, and I began to love the voice music uh, even more, and I made the decision to switch my major from piano to voice. But I've just always been drawn to classical music. My mother loved classical music. She played opera and Van Cliburn and just wonderful LP. She would put on the stereo on Saturday, just a whole stack. I listened to many wonderful singers and pianists, and I've just always loved it. I do have a love for other kinds of music as well, but for my own focus, I was just drawn to it. Okay, now, and I was real curious about this, and you and I have talked about it. I did not know that, say, an opera singer or a classical singer, I just assumed maybe they were just mouthing the words. I didn't realize that if you're singing uh, an Italian opera or a Russian opera or French, that you are actually going to learn at least some of that language so that you actually know what you're saying. And so that's the case. You're you going to learn how to pronounce the language, of course, but you're also going to learn exactly word for word what you are speaking and then put it in an idiomatic form. Yes, singers know exactly what they're singing. There would be no point in standing up and singing a lot of words that you had no idea what it meant because as a singer you are telling a story or you're part of a story or you're in a poem and you must know exactly what you're singing there to put the expressiveness in it that goes along with the music that the composers created to go with the text and most singers are very very uh well versed in being able to work in different languages, if not being able to speak them fluently. Um, 
And I think a lot of singers have an affinity for language anyway. They just have that ear for language. And it's, it's a fascinating uh, study because languages have a lot in common. But if you don't speak it fluently, you at least learn how to work in a language and uh, understand the, the structure. And of course, you find out how to pronounce it. We all know the IPA alphabet and, and as singers, we can get printouts of anything in a language. Uh, we can see the phonetic reading of it by the IPA and, and we know the IPA, then we can uh, discern how to speak the language. Okay, so this is very different than just uh, a lot of actors. I know they'll a lot of times speak the words, but they don't know the language. They've just, that's, that's the lines they were given and they were just trained, okay, you know, express sorrow when you're saying that, but you don't, they don't necessarily know the language. So it's very different for an opera singer. Yeah, we definitely want to know what we're singing about. Okay. That's all part of the performance process to, to sing a song, to relate a song to an audience, to make them experience the meaning of the song through the music and the words together. And so also tell us just how important it is for a classical singer <clears throat> to be able to read music. Oh, it's key. You can't be a singer without reading music. Uh, I won't take students unless they've had some piano background or instrumental background and they can read music. It's just totally essential. Okay, all right. Is, does music read differently from one language to another? Is it, uh, uh, the no, are the notations different at all? Or is it pretty every, universal? Every, com every composer has their own style, but no, I would not say it reads differently, no. Okay, okay, so if you had a student who you know, was Japanese and they learned to re and they were just learning even our language, still the, the musical notations, all of that would be the same. Oh, exactly. Yes. Okay. Okay. And there are many Asian opera singers who are singing uh, operas in Italian and German and Russian. I don't really know any Asian composers that have, have written operas. I'm not to say there isn't one, but yeah. They and, and, and they're, you know, Asian languages are so different from the Romance languages. So you can understand, you can just see that if, if Asians can sing the Romance languages, you know, it's not a problem. But no, there's no difference in the music. Okay. Um, what are some words of encouragement that you give your students, especially if they're struggling in a particular area where there'd be learning a particular language or a particular piece of music or a genre or something. Uh, how do you encourage students that are just, they're struggling, maybe they feel like they've hit a wall? Well, we just continue to delve into whatever area that, that is presenting the challenge and, and work it as, as, as well as we can together in the lesson. Okay. All right. Was there, was there anything else you wanted to add that you wanted to talk about? Well, I personally think singing is one of the most glorious musical disciplines there is. It's so expressive. Every voice is different. And I have enjoyed over the years hearing so many different unique voices 
and every every student's different you work with every student different it's a it's just a wonderful creative process of leading a student to discover their own voice to explore their own instrument it is really uh, just a wonderful wonderful way to be expressive musically and creatively and i've enjoyed it so much and I've learned so much from my own students. Well, you just said something that did lead me to want to ask this question. Okay, you've got students. What would be the youngest student that you've worked with and maybe the oldest students you've worked with? Well, I mentioned earlier that I have a 72-year-old soprano. Okay. And she's marvelous. She's just marvelous. And uh I just am astounded by the, the way her voice has remained so youthful. And I do not personally like to take extremely young students because the actual larynx, the muscles of the larynx do not mature until later in life. It's one part of our body that stays immature, one muscle that stays immature until really in the late teens, 20s. In the 20s and 30s, that's when the voice really uh, grows and becomes, you know, gets in its prime in the 30s and 40s. Oh. But I'm very careful. I do, I have had students as young as 12, but I'm extremely careful with their voices. I do not try to push them, overtrain them, or do anything that would harm those precious little young muscles. Uh, and then again, you know, voices are different. Some 12 year olds have more mature sounds than others. And the ones that I've taken that young have fairly mature voices for that age. And, but I do, uh, for years I only took 15 years, year olds and up. But in the last 15 years, I have taken them as low as 12 but I'm very careful with your voices. Okay. Well, you know, the whole, the whole premise behind my show is that I love art. I don't pretend like I know everything about it. And that's where, you know, the audience can see that I stumble sometimes because I'm not exactly even sure how to ask the right questions. Um, but so I'm going to ask a question now that, may be totally ignorant. I, I, I'm sure it is. But when you were talking about that, the vocal cords don't mature until, you know, you're really in your 20s or 30s. Okay, there is the stereotypical uh, child prodigy that's three years old that can play the, the violin like a virtuoso. But are you saying that they're really aren't any classical singers that are three, four, five, ten years old that, you know, that are prodigies that, that come, that, that come out like that? There are always prodigies. I think Beverly Sills is a good example. Okay. She could sing opera as a very young girl. She sang on the radio and uh, she was a very extraordinary talent there are now that we have these shows like American Idol and America's Got Talent, we see a lot of young singers on these shows with incredibly mature voices for their ages. And there have been like Char Charlotte Church, she had a big career 
as a very young singer. I do, however, think that her vo they weren't careful with her voice because as she got older, I detected a wobble in her voice. And ah. I think that from over singing at such a young age. And I don't know if she was able to to correct that or not. I'm not, I, I don't know that she was able to. But uh, that's, that's the problem. You don't want to push a young voice because you can ruin it. You can create problems in a young voice maybe that cannot be corrected as they grow, grow older. Okay, so there are the prodigies, but there, there maybe aren't quite as many as there would be in other fields. And even if there are, ooh, ooh did we lose you? Okay. Not, not that I know of, but, um, but you know, there are those exceptions. Yeah, yeah, but you do, like you said, you, you got to be careful because you can do permanent damage to these young voices and, and possibly you can't get that back. Right. Okay. All right. Well, Gina, thank you so much. Thank you for helping me stumble through this because again, the whole point of this show is it's a learning process for me. I, I, I love hearing you sing. I love, one of the things I love about being at First Prez is when we'll have the soloist sing and it's just, it's just grand and amazing. And I wanted to have this opportunity to speak to someone like yourself that could you know, give me, give some of the listeners a little bit of, of, of knowledge behind what you do and how you do it. Thank you, Bill. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed this a lot and I like your questions. I think you have an excellent grasp uh, and, and know the, the right questions to ask. Thank you for letting me share. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this episode of The Arthropologist, there are more episodes on YouTube. To see my work, you can visit my website, BillWilsonStudio.com, where I have my books, prints, and originals for sale. I am a portrait painter and illustrator, and there you can contact me about commissioned work. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm The Arthropologist.